Conversations. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Med Conversations. This is a partially e-podcast, but the more important landmark thing about this podcast is that we've just got a bunch of new recording gear. We listen to what the people are saying, and so hopefully we sound crystal clear like you're standing right in front of us on a pompous ward round. <laughs> we've also got Darvo here. And Beck is here too. And today, as a special treat for Rahul, he's been begging me, begging me for years to do this podcast. So here we are. We're going to talk about one of the best parts of the nervous system. It's hard to choose, but one of the best parts are the nerve roots. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So we'll start off with some anatomy, which is terribly uh, done over a podcast, but we're going to persist through. And then we'll talk a little bit about pathophysiology of both mechanical and non-mechanical causes. And then we'll talk about how you evaluate radiculopathy or nerve root pathology. So history exam, imaging, nerve conduction studies, EMG, and CSF. And then we'll go through some cases where we'll, we'll take out all that knowledge for a spin. So before we talk about that, Rahul, why do you care so deeply about radiculopathy? Why, uh, is it, why are we... Why are we doing this three-hour program? Yeah, it is hard to think about things that I care about more than radiculopathy, but it's probably because it's so common, uh, it's so interesting, and I guess it can have really severe consequences for people. That's right. So it's it's really common, and it's also a really important differential. So a lot of the time when you're trying to figure out what the cause of weakness is, radiculopathy is almost always in there, so it's worth understanding for that reason. And also, it, it causes back pain, but it's a relatively minor slice of the back pain pie. So it's really important to differentiate, you know, which back pain people have radiculopathy and which don't. So yeah, it's, a, it's an important thing that we're all very passionate about. All right. So let's, uh, let's start off with some anatomy. And, and I appreciate that this is, this is not a great format to talk about anatomy, but we will persist because at the moment we are just a, a podcast group, nothing more. Yeah, at the so, moment, hints at something tantalizing in the future. I'm not aware <laughs> of it, but that sounds great. <laughs> so to begin with, Beck, what are the nerve roots? So they're the first bit of nerve exiting the central nervous system, so the most proximal bit of the peripheral nervous system. Exactly right, exactly right. And so if you think about the neuroanatomy and how it all ties together, you start with the brain, brain connects to the spinal cord, Spinal cord connects to the nerve root, which is what we're talking about today. Connects, this is, yeah, L1, L2 kind of exactly. things. Exactly. Connects to the brachial plexus, connects to the peripheral nerve, connects to the. You had it here first. Ejection. L1, L2 connects to the brachial plexus. <laughs> yeah, good. good question. Lumbar sacral plexus. But so it's worth thinking about anatomy, a neuroanatomy in that kind of sequence. And, and the nerve roots sit between the spinal cord and the plexi. And so that's, the, as you said, the first part of the peripheral nervous system. So one of the important things to understand about peripheral nerve anatomy, so uh, nerve root anatomy, is where those nerve roots exit the spinal canal. So they exit the spinal canal through something called the neural foramina. And the important thing to know about these neural foramina is that anteriorly, they're bordered on by the intervertebral disc. And why do I, why do I care so much about the intervertebral disc and the fact that the neural foramina is bordered on by these, these structures? Because that's the most common part that gets damaged and then causes impingement of the nerve root. Exactly yeah, right. So they're more vulnerable than the other borders of this of this opening, which are bones. Yeah, which so are the, all bones of the, the spine. The spine in general is a terrible piece of evolutionary design, but the intervertebral discs are particularly terrible and very vulnerable to damage. And so it's important to know that the, the nerve roots pass by those intervertebral discs, and that's the most common cause of nerve root pathology. So the next thing we're going to talk about with nerve root anatomy is how the names of the nerve roots relate to the vertebral body names. And in particular, between which vertebral discs, in which um, uh, neural foramina do the nerve roots exit? And the, why do we, the reason we care about this is because when you're looking at an MRI and it's got degenerative changes everywhere and it's got, it says it's got a problem with the L4, L5 intervertebral disc you need to know which nerve root is most likely to be impacted there or you know conversely if you're looking at a patient and you see that they've got an l5 radiculopathy you need to then be able to go look at the mri and look at the right intervertebral disc space that's going to correspond to pathology at that nerve root so that's why we care so the nerve roots are named 
there's the cervical nerve roots, there's C1 to C8, there's the thoracic nerve roots, T1 to T12, there's the lumbar nerve roots, L1 to L5, and there's the sacral nerve roots, S1 to S5. And they, they kind of approximate with the vertebral bodies at a similar level. But as you, as you probably know, there's, there's a very annoying phenomenon here where there's eight nerve roots and only seven vertebral bodies. In the C-spine. In the C-spine, exactly right, exactly. So there's C1 to C8 but in the nerve roots, but only C1 to C7 with the vertebral bodies. So that means that in the cervical spine, the nerve root passes above the vertebral body with the same name. So, Beck, if we've got the intervertebral disc at C6, C7, which nerve root passes through there? That would be C7. Yeah, so the C7 goes through the neural foramina at the C6, C7 level. But then what happens once you get to the eighth nerve root? So that then passes at C7, T1 vertebral body, which means then that the T1 nerve root passes between T1, T2 exits the spinal canal at T1, T2. So, it's the so now, T1. It's, now the nerve root is below the, sp- the vertebral body that has shares the same name, is it? Exactly right. And that's how it goes for the rest of the spine. So where does T4 exit? T4, 5. L2, Rahul? At L2, 3. Exactly right. And L4, Beck? L4 exits at L4, 5. Okay, great. Great job, class. Nailed that. But there's, there's another curveball with the spinal cord and with nerve roots. Um, being affected by intervertebral discs. So when you say another, the first one is the nomenclature. Exactly oh, right. I don't know why so, I just decided to use that word. It's the worst <laughs> word to say. So the change up of being above the vertebral body with the same name to below where the nerve root exit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's curveball number one. And curveball number two is the fact that the spinal cord actually ends at T12L1 in something called the conus medullaris. And so that means all the nerve roots below L1, so that's all the uh, lumbosacral nerve roots are formed at that level, travel down in the spinal canal in something called the quarter equina, and then they finally exit at the levels that we were just discussing. So that means that the nerve root actually has a lot of time in the mean streets of the spinal canal to get done by an intervertebral disc. There's a lot of opportunity for pathology. It's not just where they exit, but anywhere really along that quarter equina they can get damaged. So, so the classic med school description is uh, like the spinal cord and then the conus medullaris at the end. And then this quarter equina is like a horse's tail or a little whip coming out the exactly end. And they're right. all just nerve roots. So that's peripheral okay. nervous system below the conus medullaris. And we care about that because it, it means that there's a, a lot of opportunity to be damaged by all the pathology that happens in this terrible piece of evolutionary design, the spine. But you would think, you know, at least they're probably most likely to be damaged where they exit, right? Wrong. So it gets, uh, it gets a little bit more complicated. The nerve root in the quarter equina is most likely to get damaged at the level above where it exits. Mm. So let's go back to our old friend L5. Beck, where does that exit again? So it exits at L5-S1. Exactly right. And it, it can get damaged there by the L5-S1 disc. That's certainly a reasonable place for it to get damaged. But where right. does it more commonly get damaged, Rahul? actually above it so l4 l5 exactly right yeah and that's just got to do with how intervertebral discs tend to herniate and where they're in closest contact with the nerve root but don't worry too much about that just remember that when a nerve root is in the quarter equina it's most likely to get damaged the level above where it exits all right so as i said that was a terrible format to talk about anatomy and intervertebral discs and nerve roots, but hopefully that made some sense. But let's go through some examples. So let's talk about the C7 nerve root. So where is that most likely to get damaged and where is it exiting the spinal canal? So those two questions have the same answer because it's the C-spine and in the C-spine, the most likely cause of damage is at the level where it exits. And at C7, that is C6, 7. All right, and so the T4 nerve root, Rahul, where does that exit and where is it most likely to get damaged? So this is where the th- in the th- thoracic spine is where the nerve root starts to come out below the, the vertebral body that's named after. So T4 will come out at the T4-5 space, the space between 4 and 5. Mm-hmm. And since we're still in the, you know, above the lumbar spine, that's the area where it's most likely to get damaged. 
Exactly right. All right. L5 back. So where does that exit and where is it most likely to get damaged? So here's where we're changing things up. Um, not in terms of the naming, which changed between the C-spine and the T-spine, but in terms of the actual anatomy. Exactly. So at L5, the nerve root is exiting the um, spinal canal at L5S1. But the side of pathology is more, well, most likely to be in the space above, even though it could be anywhere above that because now we're talking quarter equinum. So when you say anywhere L4 above, five. between L1, L2 at the conus middle and where it exits. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, that's yep. what I meant. So most likely side of compression would be at L4, 5 for the L5 nerve root that exits at L5, S1. All right. And very last one, hopefully you're so bored of this because you understand it perfectly, like Rahul does. Rahul, the S1 nerve root, where does that exit and where's the likely side of pathology? So again, we're thoracic spine and below. So it's going to exit at the below the vertebral body that it's named after. So mm-hmm. S1, S2. So mm-hmm. S1 is going to come out at S1, S2. However, because we're in that conus, uh, sorry, quarter equina, we're below the conus metallaris, uh, it can, it's most likely to get damaged at the space above, which for S1 would be L5, S1. All right. And so if you didn't understand any of that or just weren't paying attention, basically just say the second one. And by that, I mean, so at L4, 5, which nerve root is most likely to be damaged? L5 at C6, 7, which one is most likely to be damaged? C7. So that's hot tip for ward round if you're just trying to pass scrutiny, but don't do that with your patients. Try and try and understand the concepts for your patients. But if you're getting some, some questions or it's an MCQ, just guess the second one. Alrighty, cool. So moving on briefly to pathophysiology of mechanical causes. So as we've kind of alluded to, the most common cause of radiculopathy is mechanical. And the most common mechanical cause is a slip disc or a herniated disc. So discs can, at first they bulge. And then that's when the gooey center, the nucleus pulposus hasn't actually ruptured through that fibrous casing, the annulus fibrosus. So it's just bulging. And then when it does rupture, that's, that's called a herniation. And then when it completely breaks free of the rest of the disc, that's called a sequestration. May I make an analogy here? I'd love you to make Please an analogy. Please do. Yeah, Thank you. I just, I've, now I feel like I need to ask for permission to do that. But I, um, I, have you ever had a soother with a gooey center and it has like the hard outside? Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I feel like your disc is a bit like that. It's got the gooey bit in the middle, the pulposus, and then it's got the hard outside. I'm not sure how that ties to understanding the bulge and I'm not sure that's advanced or understanding of the disc at all, but uh, yeah. hasn't made me hungry. I do kind of want to soothe it now, though. Soothe Maybe we get a soother <laughs> sponsorship. Yeah, I think that the traditional analogy here is the toothpaste tube. Is it? So I kind like of prefer, prefer You squeeze the, the, the jelly stuff on the inside, you like pop off the lid. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, the discs that are kind of the most severely affected are usually the easiest to treat surgically. And it's an easiest decision to go ahead with surgery. So if you can imagine a sequestrated a sequestrated disc where it's just floating around in the spinal canal, that's pretty easy for the surgeon to go in and take it out. And a herniation, it's a bit easier for them to kind of just shave off the nucleus pulposus. But the bulge is the hardest to deal with. So that's kind of like a blessing in disguise. If it's going to be one of the few things disc. that the spinal cord has had our back for from an evolutionary design. Yeah, exactly. Do. Thanks. Finally, come up with a good... All right, and so which discs are most commonly affected that the ones that I've been talking about the most? Yeah, so it's going to be L5, uh, S1, and L4, 5. Yep. Because is it those those areas of the lumbar spine that are the most, uh, ha- have the largest degree of flexion? Exactly right, yeah, yeah. Not just the lumbar spine, but the whole spine. Like almost all your flexion comes from those two discs. And that's why, you know, if you've got poor deadlift technique or poor picking up technique, that uh, you flex over and put all the weight on your spine. That's They're the discs that slip out. Mm-mm. All right. And the underlying cause of all this is is the same as many diseases in the modern world, age and obesity, basically. All righty. So that's a, that's a brief discussion of the mechanical causes. But don't forget with radiculopathy, you can get non-mechanical causes. Now, these are pretty rare, but it can definitely happen. And those can basically be broken into infection, inflammation, malignancy, and this phenomenon of chemical radiculitis. So just briefly, chemical radiculitis is when you, you get a disc 
uh, herniation and it heals itself, but then the inflammation from the, the disc herniation actually causes some inflammation of the nerve root. So I guess that is mechanical at, at its root cause. Yeah, and it's it's rare, much, much rarer than Super the rare. mechanical ones, except in, in MCQs where I feel like these are probably a little overrepresented. Yeah, so um, yeah, all but, these non-mechanical causes are super rare, but it's important to be aware of them because they're all quite serious and have very different treatments. And you can look really fancy on a ward round when you're seeing a patient with a diabetic foot ulcer and someone notices that there's a foot drop. And this wasn't me, by the way. I wish it was. Someone notices that there's a foot drop and it turns out the patient has a bacteremia and they have discitis and the infection has caused inflammation that's pushed on one of the nerve roots and that's why they got a foot drop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so moving on to evaluation. So as always, the first part of the evaluation is history. So you've got two main goals when you're taking a history of someone that you think is radiculopathy. Number one is you want to nail down that it's mechanical, looking so features of mechanical radiculopathy. And number two, you want to exclude any red flags to make sure that you don't think there's anything super sinister going on here. So if you're trying to nail down the features of a typical mechanical radiculopathy, what are they, Rahul? So I was looking for, I mean, I think about the classic person who was twinging their back, trying to lift up their uh, friend's, I don't know. Baby. Donkey. Large, pop plant. Yeah, pop, pop plant. plant. It's always moving boxes. Yeah. Actually, I find the friend often, often nothing. Like it's it's really minor, which is kind of scary. But go on. Mm. Yeah, so, an, yeah, inciting so a, an inciting event that occurs with twisting, talking the back, and then back pain or uh, something that looks like a bit like sciatica pain. So something that goes down the leg, down the back of the leg being the traditional sciatica pain. But I think it's, would you agree, Davor, that the term is now generalized in common parlance to represent any pain that shoots down the leg? No, so sciatica... Cool. <laughs> I wouldn't agree with that either. <laughs> sciatica pain is... is yes, and generally referring to radiculopathy pain. So just to zoom in on that pain issue, because that's really important, because one of your main differentials for mechanical radiculopathy is just your axial pain with a bit of referred pain down the what leg. What do you mean by really axial common. pain, double? So axial pain is just kind of your barn door back pain due to like a muscle twinge or maybe an osteophyte or some osteoarthritis of the back, but there isn't actually a disc that's suddenly herniated and causing a bad radiculopathy. So it's really important to nail down with a patient where is most of your pain? Is it mostly in the back or is it mostly running down the back of your leg? So you say like if 100% of your pain in your body, what percentage is that and what percentage is, is your leg? And that's important because surgery is not really going to help with your axial pain, but it can help with kind of your shooting sciatica-like pain. If that's the main problem, then you know, sometimes it's reasonable to do surgery just with really bad pain. So yeah, you've got your inciting event, you've got pain, both your back pain and your sciatica-like pain running down your leg. Then you look for neurological symptoms, so numbness and weakness. And then finally, a really important question to figure out whether it's mechanical or not is whether it's positional. So if you think about it, there's a nerve root that's getting compressed by something, a disc. And so most patients are able to find some kind of position that they feel a little bit better. And usually that's lying down. So they often feel better at night and you've got to worry about those patients that just can't find that position even all night they're kind of in really severe pain so that segues quite nicely in the second important part of the history which is identifying red flags so what are, what are the red flags that we look for in patients that, that we're working out for radiculopathy to make sure they don't have something more sinister back yeah so if they've got progressive symptoms if the symptoms are getting worse with time mm-hmm. bladder and bowel symptoms so, so incontinence or or retention so in terms of the progressive symptoms it, with the typical mechanical cause it's usually bang i was picking this up and then suddenly i got pain and then it's kind of gradually maybe got a little bit better than that it doesn't kind of get worse day by day by day mm-hmm. but yeah bladder and bowel symptoms are is another important one and then you you consider the patient context so in particular if they're kind of immunosuppressed you might be a bit more worried about an infection is there anything else in kind of background symptoms that you'd be worrying about beck yeah any b symptoms are always a worry yeah exactly and B then symptoms my- being those sort of fatigue, um, lack of appetite, weight fevers, weight loss. Yeah. 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 So they're always suggested there's a stomach uh, suspicious going on, particularly cancers, but also autoimmune processes. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got your myelopathic features. So uh, that means when you've got more of a spinal cord syndrome, so a CNS problem. 
And then finally, if they've got multiple nerve roots, so that's a really good one. So if they've got, you know, L, left L5 and then, you know, right C7, that's unlikely to be two discs that have just kind of popped one after the other. So what are you more worried about in that case, Beck? Uh, I'm actually not too sure. So like an inflammatory cause or like a malignancy cause, they, they tend to just kind of pick off random roots here and there. And often there'll be like a cranial nerve involvement as well. So they might get a facial droop mm. and then they'll get this nerve root and then that nerve root. If that, that kind of pattern is going on, probably not disc. Yeah. So going a little bit off, um, off script here, the two examples you gave just then were in the lumbar spine. So at that point, the, the nerve roots are running as part of the quarter equina. Mm-hmm. So if there's multiple lumbar nerves affected lumbar nerve roots affected um is could, could that not occur from a disc prolapse that's just compressing on the quarter equina and affecting different nerve roots within the quarter equina yeah, that can definitely happen but it it, it you raises do, your suspicion for something else exactly right, right particularly if they're not you know right next to each other if they're right next to each other you're thinking wow maybe this is just a massive disc yeah particularly yeah. in the quarter equina where they're running closely together but Different random ones in different spots. That's definitely a red flag, something else going on. Yeah, cool. All right, so moving on to the exam. So you do your typical thorough neurological exam like you do for all patients. So we're just going to focus in on certain things. So talking about power, the main question you've got with power is you need to differentiate the nerve root from the peripheral nerve that can give you kind of like a similar presentation. So we'll we'll go through some of the most common nerve roots that are affected in radiculopathy and what they're kind of peripheral nerve differential is and how you differentiate the two. So starting off with C7. So that typically typically presents with uh, elbow extension, wrist flexion extension, and finger extension weakness. What's the main differential for a C7 radiculopathy, Beck? So all of that extension, I'm thinking of the radial nerve. Exactly right. So that's the other thing that can give you a wrist drop. So wrist drop or finger drop, you're thinking C7 or radial nerve. But there's a particular muscle that I'm pretty sure was just invented to differentiate C7 and radial nerve. And what's that, Rahul? The brachioradialis muscle. Exactly right. So elbow flexion. So when you're doing an exam and someone you suspect has a C7 radiculopathy, you're really going to pay close attention to the brachioradialis. You might, you know, test that three, four times to make sure that it's not weak because that would mean that they've got a radial nerve problem. Yeah. And so when you say that's that's elbow flexion, that's your the, the kind of beer drinking exactly movement. Right. So with the with the hand in um, hammer, hammer curls for all the guys out there hit the gym. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. So the next nerve root that we're going to talk about is the L4. That's another really common one. So the L4 does knee extension. L4 kicks the door as the mnemonic, I think. And what's the peripheral nerve that does knee extension? So what, what two differentials are you going to have in your head when you're doing your L4 short case? Mm, so I'm thinking of the femoral nerve. Exactly. That's the main differential here. And so the difference between an L4 radiculopathy and uh, femoral neuropathy on your power exam is adduction. So AD, the, hip. the hip adduction, exactly right. So hip adduction is affected in L4 and it's spared in, in femoral neuropathy. And I've had quite a few cases actually on the ward uh, where that's really helped me differentiate, differentiate the two. And then the final, the, the king of the nerve root pathology, the L5 nerve root. So that does great toe extension, eversion of the foot, inversion of the foot, dorsiflexion of the foot, abduction of the hip. So it does a whole bunch of foot movements and then randomly jumps up and does abduction of the hip. So that's the important thing to remember with the L5. So L5 radiculopathy, it has two main peripheral neuropathy differentials. So Beck, what are they? Perineal and sciatic. Exactly right. So Rahul, when you're differentiating a perineal neuropathy from L5 radiculopathy, which movements are you particularly focused in on? So for perineal, I think about, one way to think about it is that it's not going to do abduction because that's way further up. The perineal is quite a distal nerve, so it sort of deals with stuff below the knee. So it doesn't do when abduction. It's not going to do abduction. You're talking about the hip. It's not going to do abduction of the hip. That's right. It's not going to do abduction of the hip. Uh, and then the other thing is I think of a perineal nerve um, not being as bad as doing a nerve root, just like it seems like a nerve root would be worse. And so you don't lose inversion of the foot uh, when you have a perineal nerve lesion, but you do lose it when you have an L5. So the two things you're looking at are abduction of the hip and inversion of the foot. And if you've lost those, it suggests you've got something going on higher up at L5 rather than the perineal nerve. 
Exactly right. So they're the movements you're really going to focus your, your examination on. So I should add that these patients will usually present with foot drop. And my point is that foot drop can be either L5, perineal neuropathy, or sciatic neuropathy. So Beck, how are you going to differentiate your sciatic neuropathy from your L5? So I just think of sciatic neuropathy as being the worst one. So all the movements of the foot are shot. So we said already that uh, with an L5 neuropathy, you lose your dorsiflexion. There's weakened dorsiflexion. But if it's just an L5 neuropathy, plantar flexion is intact. However, in a sciatic nerve injury, your plantar flexion is also weak. Exactly right, which also means you lose your Achilles reflex. We'll come to that again in a moment. Mm. So I think the... I mean, love this. All of it is very, very important. Well done, Davo. Thank Thank you. you. But I think the last couple of minutes is really where the money is from this whole podcast. So in summary, the differential for a C7 radiculopathy is a radial nerve palsy. And the differentiator here is the brachioradialis. Then we've got an L4 pathology. We're differentiating with ephemeral nerve pathology. And what you look at there is hip adduction. L5 differentials are perineal neuropathy and sciatic neuropathy. And the differentiators there are that hip abduction is only affected in L5. And then with perineal, you get a weakness of inversion. So you don't get weakness of inversion. And sciatic nerve, you do get weakness of plantar flexion. They're the two differentiators. Awesome. Okay. All right. And so the next part of the exam is reflexes, which is really important in radiculopathy because a lot of these patients are in really bad pain and your reflexes are where you're going to get information. So with reflexes, uh, unfortunately, we don't have a good reflex for L5, which is the most commonly affected. For a lot of the other ones, we do. So your biceps jerks, which nerve roots innovate your biceps jerks back? C5, 6. And your triceps jerks, what innovates that? C7. Yeah, which is a really common one to get. And remember, L4 kicks the door. So your knee jerk is what? L34. Yep. And your S1 is what? Um, so that's your Achilles. Yeah. yeah. Ankle jerk. And then for L5, as I said, we don't have a good reflex for it, but some people kind of trying to wheel it into existence with something called an internal hamstring reflex. So this is a little bit off in the weeds, but basically you can put your finger over the medial hamstring and, uh, and you can get a reflex there. And some people say that that's reduced in L5, but really a lot of nerve roots innovate that reflex. So it doesn't tend to be that clinically useful in my experience. Is I it easy to get med- that reflex? What was that, sorry? Is it easy to get that reflex? Uh, yeah, it's reasonably easy to get, I think, if you're yeah. cool. <laughs> if you're a medical student, I think don't worry about that. That's more um, that's more you're a cool medical advanced. Student. All right, sensation. So with sensation, you basically need to know all your dermatomes. So no. all that study pays off finally when you're trying to look at this patient with uh, radiculopathy. But if you don't know your dermatomes, you haven't slacked off in med school, then there's two important ones I want to talk about. So C7, so this is a classic MCQ fodder. What's your C7 dermatome back? So the main thing is it's limited to the hand. It doesn't go up the arm and uh, I test the middle finger. Yeah, so it, the textbooks say it's a middle finger. Often it does, the patients don't read the textbooks and it can be some other random finger like your index finger, but classically middle finger and it's just limited to your hand. L5, so your L5 does your the lateral calf, but there's a particular part that you can really test, differentiate between perineal nerve which as we know is a main differential here so the sensation difference between a perineal nerve and an l5 radiculopathy where do you look rahul so you're looking on the outside of the knee and again that's spared by the common perineal nerve and i think of that as the common perineal nerve is really dealing with the lower below the knee sort of stuff it's actually not spared by the it is actually supplied by the perineal but where you get perineal supply uh, where you get perineal compression sorry that branch is spared. So if you've got a common perineal uh, nerve compression, you usually will get sparing of the lateral knee, but you won't necessarily get that in an L5 radiculopathy. That's a pretty soft sign. I wouldn't be hanging hanging my diagnostic hat on that, but it's a, it's a good little extra one to have. Yeah, so C7, we're looking at the middle finger mm-hmm. and L5, the lateral knee. Yep. 
All right. So the last part of your exam, which is a bit different to your to your other neuro exams, is maneuvers. So you might have heard of something called the straight leg raise. So if someone comes in complaining of sciatica down one of that one of their legs, you're going to try and reproduce that by uh, doing the straight leg raise, where you flex the hip, extend the knee, and then cherry on top, dorsiflex the foot right at the end, and that should recreate the same pain. Um, that they get with their radiculopathy and it should be shooting pain down the leg exactly right yeah and it should recreate it no matter which leg you test so if if they're complaining of right sciatica pain if you do the right leg they'll get right sciatica pain but if you do the other side the contralateral straight leg raise it's called they'll get right sciatica as well so that's evidence that there's a kind of a mechanical cause of the radiculopathy so it's a good test to kind of really nail down that i think this is a disc or some mechanical cause compressing the nerve and I'm making it worse with my straight leg raise test. All right, so imaging. So the how you image nerve roots basically has to be an MRI spine. Your CT spine is not useful here. It has to be an MRI. And there's certain patients that are, are going to need an MRI right away that you'll be calling radiology. As soon as you see them, you'll be calling neurosurgery as soon as you see them and they need an MRI kind of that afternoon. And they're the patients that have severe or bilateral neurological deficits or bad weakness or progressive neurological deficits getting rapidly worse, or if you're really worried that there could be kind of something infective or inflammatory or malignant going on, they definitely need patient, uh, an MRI. So, so other patients don't? Yeah, so it's a bit of a controversial issue, to be honest. So some people say that if you've got a barn door clinical diagnosis of an L5 radiculopathy, they bent over, they pick something up, and they had shooting pain down one of their legs, and one of their legs has a bit of foot drop that doesn't look like perineal or sciatic, and it's um, getting better with time, that that patient, you can make a clinical diagnosis of radiculopathy, and you don't, you never need to uh, image their spine. But to be honest, most neurologists, I would say that they would do an MRI um, on those patients. So most, pe- most neurologists that I know would say that if I'm pretty clinically confident that it is a radiculopathy, that I'll do an MRI spine on that patient and I might as well do it sooner rather than later because they're going to need it at some stage anyway. That's the prevailing opinion that I come across. That's a little bit different to the guidelines, to be completely honest. And the reason it's a little bit different to the guidelines is because incidental findings in spine MRIs are super, super common. So one study found that if you just do random MRIs on random people, 27% of people without back pain or any radiculopathy symptoms had evidence of disc herniation. So you gotta be really careful that you don't go kind of barking up the wrong tree. And that's why the rest of your kind of history and exam is really important to nail down that this is a radiculopathy. I think this is just a really important tenet of clinical medicine in general. So Mm-mm. imaging and investigations should be supporting a diagnosis that's made clinically, but not necessarily establishing it. Except for the stroke, your DWI is the perfect test. Okay. And troponin, right, Rahul? You still, still there? Yeah, yeah, I'm sort of half, half in, half out, but troponins are definitely. <laughs> <laughs> troponins are a good test. Yeah. All right. So the other test you can do for radiculopathy is something called a nerve conduction study and EMG electromyography. So I won't dwell on this too much. As fascinating as it is, it's probably not really medical student, junior doctor level. But just know that with a radiculopathy the nerve conduction studies will probably be normal and the diagnosis is actually made on the EMG, the electromyography, uh, because you basically get, when, when, the, when the nerve root is damaged, the downstream uh, muscles denervate and then they start doing funny things like fibrillating, et cetera. Mm, so if someone comes into emergency and they've just picked up the giant pot plant, they've just started uh, presenting with this back pain, not do you do it in ED? No. What's the timeline? So you, usually three weeks. So because you need to give time for those those kind of muscles to degenerate a little bit. How often know? would you use this, Davor, and how much does it actually help with your, what your diagnostic? Very interesting question, right? So glad you asked. It's it, 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 Some people say it's completely useless. So I was talking to a neurologist recently. He said that I never do this. It doesn't add anything. Mm. Neurosurgeons seem to really like it, and we get a lot of referrals from neurosurgeons. And one of the main reasons it's done is for work compensation. All right. Yeah, yeah. So to if you prove, prove that weakness related to that, or that the muscles affect, like what's the what do you? Well, mean? if you if you've got clear weakness on exam, that's enough. But if you don't have clear weakness and you find something on your EMG, then that's enough to get more work compensation, I believe, than just kind of axial back pain. That's mm. interesting. Okay. Mm, mm, mm. 
Right. What other tests do we do? So there's one other test that we sometimes do, not that commonly, and that's CSF, a lumbar puncture. So that is not done when you think there's a mechanical cause, but when you think it's one of those other non-mechanical causes, one of those red flag causes, like an inflammatory cause, like sarcoid or something, or an effective cause, like zoster can cause this, um, or a malignant cause, like leptomeningeal disease, they, they're rare causes of radiculopathy, and usually you'll see something in the CSF, you'll see raised white cells in those cases. But before you go doing a lumbar puncture in someone with back pain and radiculopathy, they definitely need an MRI beforehand because they could have an epidural abscess and you don't want to poke through an epidural abscess into the CSF. That probably is the end of investigations. I think the key thing to take out of that is that MRI is the most useful investigation, but there can be a role for other investigations exactly as well. Exactly right. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. So moving on to management. So non-medical therapy first. So we're well beyond the era of telling our patients to rest in bed. So that's not really recommended. So they should just basically do as much as they can. And there's, there's some good trial evidence for that. There was a trial that came out in 2020, actually, that showed that patients that mobilized early actually did better in the long term, which is good because uh, there's not a lot of evidence in radiculopathy. I was going to say, wow, a trial in uh, neurology yeah, exactly. neurosurgery. That's not, that's not something you say. Well, it wasn't done by the neurosurgeons, I don't think, or by the <laughs> neurologists for that matter. But yeah, Physiotherapists, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So yeah, it's good to have some evidence for that. And uh, that's what we tend to recommend. So moving on to medical therapy. So now we're more straying into the evidence-free zone. So almost all our patients in the short term get NSAIDs and paracetamol. And that's one of those things that we do, but even though there's no evidence for it, because it's you know pretty low risk and it seems to work okay. Um, and then if they need something a bit heavier than that, then as you'll see a lot of stuff get thrown around a lot of it's pretty harmful to patients and there's no evidence for any of it. So you've got to really tread carefully in this kind of, this kind of territory. And we're talking about things like steroids, neuropathic pain androids, particularly Lyrica pregabalin that gets thrown around a lot, um, benzodiazepines and opioids. So there's no, just know that there's no real evidence for any of those. Personally, I use Lyrica and steroids kind of the most but steroids only in like the very short term. So if I'm convinced that someone's got uh, an inflamed disc that's causing their radiculopathy, a little bit of steroids might help. And when you're talking about steroids here, you're talking about oral exactly steroids. Right. Exactly right. Yeah, like yeah. But the benzos and the opioids, as you can imagine, they're, they're pretty dangerous things to put patients with back pain and radiculopathy, and you can get some long-term sequelae from them. So, and then the other thing you might hear about with management of radiculopathy is epidural glucocorticoid injections. So you can actually give injections of a mixture, it's a mixture of lignocaine and steroids, and you can give that right into the nerve root, and that can provide kind of some short-term relief. Again, no evidence. Mm, okay. So where's the evidence? There is no evidence. We, we've but already gone is, are we, Where's the evidence for what what management is there evidence for? Any <laughs> surgeries? Not really, no. So there's no, there's very. Is it, so why are we talking about this anyway? <laughs> it's common Classic important. neurology, hey? What do yeah. you think my work, Beck? There's enough evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So moving on to surgery. So there's some cases where like a surgery definitely works. We're never going to get a trial for that. It would be what we call a parachute trial. And that's things like severe or progressive uh, motor weakness or quarter equina syndrome. Those patients get rushed straight to theater and it, it definitely works, we think. But then that's a, a very small minority patient. There's a large swath of other patients uh, that have different combinations of bad pain. Uh, sometimes they've just got axial pain. They might have a little bit of minor motor weakness and no pain or some motor weakness and lots of pain or just sensory deficits or sensory deficits deficits and pain. There's all these different combinations and how much those symptoms bother the patient will really vary person to person. And the specific anatomy that we're dealing with, you know, might be more or less difficult to deal with. So it really comes down to a conversation between that patient and the surgeon. But generally speaking, most people with really severe pain that hasn't responded to just uh, just kind of simple analgesia and a few weeks of rest will usually get surgery. And people who have uh, weakness that's disabling in some kind of way will usually get uh, surgery as well. 
So to summarize, very much an evidence-free zone, which is remarkable given how common and how disabling and how bad a problem is, but we just, we really don't, don't know what we're doing. We're shooting in the dark, but neurosurgeons are very helpful to refer to. And, and as I said, it often comes down to a conversation between the patient and the neurosurgeon. All right, so let's, um, let's go into some cases and let's test out that knowledge. So we'll start off with this guy, we'll call him Bob. He's 50. He's got no significant past history apart from some hypertension and some high cholesterol. He's not in great shape and he lives a pretty sedentary life, but he's pretty healthy. One day, out of the blue, he decides he's going to do some work in the garden. He starts lifting around heavy bags of soil with really bad technique. He's just doing all that flexion of the spine that L4, 5, L5, S1 is creaking. He feels a twinge and then bang, severe back pain. And then the next day he wakes up with sciatica-like pain running down his right leg. So that all sounds pretty mechanical. When you, you, you do the red flag history and there's nothing, there's no red flags, there's nothing to worry about. So you examine him, he's got normal power, normal reflexes, maybe re a little bit of dysesthesia between the, uh, in the lateral calf and the dorsum of the foot and, and maybe between the first and second toes. And he's got a very strongly positive straight leg raise and contralateral straight leg raise. You really... Uh, recreate that those sciatica symptoms or that sciatica symptom going down his right leg. So Rahul, what do you think is going on here? Does this guy have a mechanical radiculopathy? Yeah, so I mean we have a clear inciting event and then sciatica-like pain and some very clear positive straight leg raise, some other clear signs of, um, of sensory uh, disturbance on exam. So it does seem like he does have a mechanical radiculopathy, a story or fits. Job. Which uh, nerve do you think is involved given where his sensory changes? Yeah, so that would fit with an L5 sensory dermatome. And if I can cast your mind to the beginning of the podcast, which disc is most likely involved with an L5 radiculopathy? So it's because we're in the lumbar spine and you know it comes out, the disc above, for whatever reason, tends to affect the uh, nerve root below. It's going to be L4-5, despite the fact that L5 leaves at L5-S1, exits the exactly right. L5-S1. Star people. So would you do an MRI in this kind of case, Spec? Yeah, it sounds like uh, from what you said, we probably would, but that the evidence uh, and the guidelines say perhaps not. So it's a little bit of a grey zone, but at, at our hospital, yeah, it would be yes. Yeah. If Davor was the neurology registrar on at the hospital, yes. Anywhere else, anywhere else in the world. <laughs> <would be enough. laughs> All right, how do we treat it? So this chap, uh, we strongly encouraged him to mobilise as much as he could, gave him some Panadol and Nurofen. And the pain was still there, pretty severe uh, after a couple of weeks. And the MRI showed a pretty big disc pathology at L4-5. And so we referred to the neurosurgeons and then they decided between themselves to go ahead with the surgery. And he, he made a pretty good recovery. All right. So same guy. He's recovered from his previous injury and he's decided, you know what, this all happened because... I'm old and I'm a little bit overweight. I can't do anything about the age, but I'm going to go to the gym and uh, get a little bit more fit. So he starts deadlifting what he used to do when he was age 30 and he's forgotten his technique and bang, a familiar back pain strikes him and he goes skulks back to bed. And in the morning, he's got shooting pain down his, uh, down his leg again. But this time it's shooting down the front of his right leg and kind of the middle calf. So it's a little bit different. He's in denial, so he doesn't go to the doctor, but a few days later, his right leg starts collapsing on him and he comes to you. So you examine him and he's got reduced power in his right leg proximal muscles. So his hip flexion and his knee extension. Uh, and uh, you can't really examine him very uh, closely because he's in a lot of pain, but you do notice that he's got a reduced knee jerk on his right side. He's also got reduced sensation down his medial calf and a strongly positive uh, straight leg raise down his right leg. So which bit of the examination did I skip over there? And why why is it important in this particular radiculopathy back? All right. So it sounds like if it is a radiculopathy, it sounds like probably L4. Mm -hmm. And um, what's your evidence for that? So the L4 dermatome is what's been affected. Mm -hmm. Um, so the, the medial calf. And L4 kicks the door. He's lost his knee and jerk. he's lost his knee jerk. So yeah. that, and, and so the other, but my other differential diagnosis here would be uh, the um, 
femoralopathy. The femoral nerve. Exactly. And right, yeah. so the other movement that you didn't mention doing that would have been good to test would be adduction at the hip, so adduction. Exactly right. Rahul, which disc do you think is affected with an L4 radiculopathy? So once again, we're in the lumbar spine, so it's going to be the disc space or you know the space above the nerve root. So that's going to be the L3-4 disc. However, we know that the L4 nerve root exits at the L4-5 space, but it's going to be mm-hmm. L3-4 that's causing the problem, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah, so he, this guy ended up having an MRI that showed exactly that and uh, ended up uh, having surgery again. So this time he recovers from the, his second operation and this time he's like, oh, I really need to get fit, but I'm going to do a bit more sensibly. So he gets back to exercise, but he soon notices that he's got bad pain in his hip. And uh, soon enough, he finds himself in the offices of an orthopedic surgeon and he's getting a hip replacement. And he wakes up from his operation and he notices he can't move his right foot. It's like, oh my God, not again. I've done a disc again. So you're asked to see him. You can't really assess his proximal power because he's just had a hip replacement, but he's lost all his foot movements. He's lost his dorsiflexion, his plantar flexion, his inversion, his eversion, Uh, but his knee reflex is intact but his ankle reflex is gone and he's got reduced sensation everywhere below the knee apart from the medial calf. So what do you, what do you think is going on here, Rahul? What's your, what's your radiculopathy dif- differential? And uh, what's your... I guess we're looking at a lot of stuff at the foot there and obviously he's just had surgery with the hip replacement so we're concerned about some compression on a nerve. Mm-hmm. So if we're thinking nerve yeah. roots, I'm thinking in the um, L5-S1 region because we're getting down more distal in the legs or foot. So, so L5 could, or S1, which one? Uh, S1 because that you know, controls his ankle reflex and that's gone here. Um, yeah, but does, does the S1 control your, your foot dorsiflexion? No, it doesn't. So you so would normally can maintain two your two nerve roots. That's right. So you'd either need two nerve roots or potentially we could unite them with a sciatic nerve or maybe, you know, on the cards is always a perineal, common perineal nerve as well. But is you it with this fit with a common perineal? No, he's got uh, reduced ankle um, reflex and also he's lost his inversion. And we remember that inversion was, uh, was uh, preserved in a common perineal injury. And he's also lost his plantar flexion. Yes. So your two differentials, if you're, if you're really committed to the nerve root idea because he's had so many nerve root problems before, you have to invoke two of them, L5 and S1. So that seems a little bit less likely. Or maybe he had a sciatic neuropathy because he uh, was uh, in, a, in a funny position when they were doing his hip replacement, which is a common, not common, but it can happen after hip replacement. So yeah, this guy's got a, a sciatic neuropathy and that's confirmed on a, uh, on a nerve conduction study. But you probably would still do an MRI of his spine just to make sure that nothing funky has been going on, given he's had two operations in the area before. All righty, next case. So this guy is actually uh, one of triplets, and his sister uh, is exactly the same um, She's she, as him in, in terms of she's pretty sedentary. So she's a bit overweight, and she's um, visiting her brother, while he's laid up in hospital with his sciatic neuropathy and she picks something up off the ground for him. Boom, sudden back pain, sciatica down her right leg. And then she notices a little bit of clumsiness with her foot kind of the next day. You examine her, she's got reduced dorsiflexion, inversion and eversion. All the reflexes are intact though. And uh, she's got a little bit of reduced sensation of her lateral calf, dorsum of the foot and the great toe. So this probably fits best with an L5 radiculopathy, right? You've got loss of dorsiflexion she's got a foot drop and inversion and eversion but uh, which which movements would be really important to focus in on your on your exam to kind of differentiate from your peripheral neuropathy differentials and why rahul so we're really considering three differentials here l5 the common perineal nerve and sciatic nerve that's exactly right Rahul. well done yeah, so I'm going to start off with abduction, hip abduction, uh, which you lose with L5, but exactly. not with the other two. Mm-hmm. And then I'm also going to look at foot inversion. And foot inversion, you don't lose with the common perineal nerve, but you do lose with L5 and the sciatic nerve. Exactly right. And then I'm lastly, I'm going to be looking at plantar flexion. Cause Hold on. Yeah, with plantar flexion, you only lose that in S1. Perfect. And sciatic nerve and, as well. 
Oh, sorry. Yes, S1 and sciatic nerve, um, which is composed of L5 and S1. So that's the plantar flexion. Three for three. Well done. And if you're going to be super fancy, you can look at just the patch of, patch of skin over the lateral knee to differentiate between your common perineal and your L5. It's affected in L5, but not in your common perineal. You know so, what's interesting? I'm going to sidebar here. Go on, yeah. How little variation there is in the nervous, the innovation of uh, people's limbs when it comes to this sort of stuff. You know, like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's interesting you bring that up. A heap of variation. Because unfortunately, <laughs> this is not how it works in the real world. <laughs> really? I was just thinking, because like, when you do, I don't know, vascular anatomy, like, it's so different in so many people, but this is, just seems to be mm. like, if you're getting down to the fact that the patch of skin over the lateral knee is a good differentiator, I would have thought that means that it's a. I would say it was a good differentiator. I said it was a differentiator. I feel like even felt... if you look at different maps of dermatomes in different textbooks, exactly. they're completely different. I found that so frustrating as a medical student but mm. it's because they're completely different people to people okay all right well take all of this with a grain of salt the last hour <laughs> with a grain of salt <laughs> it's a general right. general patterns all right and so this uh this second of the triplets this uh lady she also has an mri uh, which shows that she has had an l5 radiculopathy from an l45 disc and she also ends up under the knife of the neurosurgeons all right, so this, this uh, triplet that has had the L5 uh, radiculopathy, she's, she's drinking her sorrows away. And one Saturday night, she falls asleep uh, with her arm over the chair after having a few too many beers. And then she wakes up in the morning and she notices that she's got some arm and hand weakness and some numbness over the lateral side of her arm. She comes to see you, examine her. She's got a wrist drop. She's got a finger drop. And she's got some mild elbow flexion weakness as well. All her reflexes are fine. And she's got reduced sensation of the lateral dorsum of her hand and also extending a little bit past the wrist. What is the diagnosis back? All right. This is sounding a lot like a radial neuropathy. Why do you think that? Zoom in on the bits of the examination that I told you about. Yeah. So the bit that made me perk up my ears was... Um, you, you mentioned that there was a sensory change over the lateral side of the arm, so not just um, not, not just, just the, the not just the hand. And so, I remember you saying just earlier that one of the key things about C seven is that it doesn't supply sensation the proximal side of the wrist crease. So that's making me think that it's the radial nerve and the radial nerve and C seven being the main differentials for wrist drop. What about on the Motor examination. What the was motor that? examination, yeah. So, so you mentioned elbow flexion being uh, being weak. So, I'm, I'm thinking of the brachioradialis muscle there, nice, uh, nice. which is affected in a radial neuropathy, but not affected in C7. Um, there's also sparing of the triceps reflex and elbow extension. Yeah, which you would expect to see in a C7, but you'd expect to see that in a radial nerve as well. That radial nerve does the triceps reflex. Rahul, why has this lady spared her triceps reflex? Because it's injured below the axilla, above the elbow, in a little fella I like to call the spiral groove. Named it, did you? That's cool, Rahul. I named it, yeah. You named it. It's actually called the Rahul groove. <laughs> Uh, famous dance move and also a bit of terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah, it is called Saturday Night Palsy though. And this is a classic banger of a neurological presentation. So a radial neuropathy that spares the tricep reflex and spares elbow extension. All right. Second last case. So there's another, as I said, they were triplets. So there's a third one. And uh, she is much more active than the other two. Her name's Doreen and she's a keen golfer and she did a really sweet, powerful swing. And then she felt a strong pain in her neck and pain soon after shooting down her left arm and numbness over her left middle finger along with some left arm weakness. So you're so sick of this family and their radiculopathies, you just go straight for the money and you think this is probably a C7 radiculopathy. That's what it sounds like. So what are we going to see on exam with a C7 radiculopathy, Beck? All right. So you're going to get some weakness at the triceps, weak wrist extension, wrist flexion, finger extension, and pronation of the forearm. And which, which movement is going to be spared? 
that you're seeing the main differential of the yeah so again that that beer drinking muscle brachioradialis which uh reflex is going to be lost triceps exactly right good all right and so she also turns out to have a disc problem where rahul she's got a c7 radiculopathy well, it's going to be the C6-7 because in the uh, cervical right. spine, it's coming out above the vertebral body that it's named after. So nice, C7 nice, nice, nice. is coming between six, C6-7. Good job. All right, and so that's what the MRI shows, and she also ends up in the neurosurgeon's office. All right, last case. So they have an older brother. He's not one of the triplets. He's 60 years old, and he also presents with weakness and back pain. He's a heavy smoker, but otherwise has no past history. So his history is a little bit different. He initially has some dysesthesia over his right buttock, and then a few weeks later noticed some back pain and then some progressive bilateral lower limb weakness and uh, some difficulty with micturition with going to the toilet. And then along with that, when you when you do your red flag history, he tells you, look, I have lost my appetite. Of my, I haven't weighed myself, but... Definitely lost a few belt buckles. Um, and I think I've, I've been having some fevers and night sweats. You examine him, his cranial nerve and upper limb exam was normal. But all his lower limb muscles were moderately to severely weak, um, with the distal worst and proximal. All his reflexes were reduced as well. And he had reduced uh, sensation of the dorsum and soles of both feet and of the calves and buttocks. So this does not sound like a mechanical radiculopathy. Would you agree, Beck? I would agree. So the, the red flags here are the time course. So it's getting worse, it's progressive over weeks to months. Mm-hmm. The involvement of bladder and bowel symptoms. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this is happening on both sides, so the bilateral bilateral symptoms. And probably the, the main one that, that sticks out to me is that this is a man with weight loss and fever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so some um, systemic symptoms that, that say to me that we need to think about things like infection and malignancy. Mm-mm-mm. Exactly. All right. So what would you do next? You would do an MRI, but you do an MRI that's a little bit different. You don't have to worry about this too much as a medical student, but you would add something called gadolinium or contrast into that MRI um, because that contrast is good at picking up those kind of non-mechanical causes like infective or inflammatory or malignant causes and that shows enhancements so contrast enhancements of all his lumbosacral nerve roots basically and so you're thinking look this is looking a bit sinister you do a lumbar puncture there's no epidural abscess so you feel safe in doing that and that lumbar puncture shows 50 lymphocytes which is an abnormal number number of lymphocytes you're only allowed kind of two to three Mm. or actually maximum five Uh, but 50 is definitely abnormal and so, like, mm, okay, this is this is not looking so good. Um, so you do a CT chest abdo pelvis as you usually would, and uh, you find that he's got a lung malignancy, um, probably related to that smoking history. But that's a that's a good example. I've seen something similar of of needing to be aware of of uh, that something is a non mechanical cause of radiculopathy, and it's all really in the history. That's why taking a careful time course history, even in something that seems pretty barn door, is always worthwhile doing. All right, that's it. We've come to the end of this podcast. So what have you guys learned? Something, I hope. Yeah, a couple of things. So we've gone through where the nerve roots exit and some of the nomenclature. Exactly right. So we remember that in the cervical spine, the nerve roots pass above the vertebral body with the same name. So C67 is a good example because that's where C7 nerve root passes. But then as soon as you get to the thoracic spine, the opposite happens. The nerve root passes below the vertebral body of the same name. So for T4-5, that's where the T4 nerve root passes. And that's the same all the way to the bottom of the lumbosacral spine. But we know that in the lumbosacral spine, where the pathology is, is not necessarily where they exit. Is that right, Nick? That's right. So generally... The uh, space above is more likely to be the um, the side of the pathology. Sometimes I, I think I sound like a, a gospel preacher. And they're right. Maybe I don't sound like a gospel preacher. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe a really uncharismatic one. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I think one of the other things we learned is some of the red flags. that are on the red flags. Yeah, so yeah you really, really need to look for progressive symptom, multiple nerve roots, and weight loss, B, weight symptoms. Loss, B symptoms, and whether someone's immunosuppressed. 
And then a whole lot of stuff on localizing the lesion, the real neurology jam. So telling the difference between axial back pain and radiculopathy pain, and then differentiating between some of those syndromes. So um, differentiating uh, in, in a problem with uh, wrist drop between C7 and the radial nerve, mm-hmm. in foot drop between L5, common perineal and sciatic nerve, and then telling teasing apart an L4 pattern of weakness from femoral. In the extension problems. In the extension. And if, if, say weakness and sensation. If you've somehow nailed that into your brain, you would just be so far ahead of, of everyone. Like it, it, it took me a long time to, to remember all that. It seems simple now. It, when you we should just read Doesn't textbooks. It? Doesn't it just seem sim- simple? We should just read, read textbooks into the microphone at the end and say, if you've somehow nailed that into your brain, <laughs> you're ahead of the normal med student. That's what I'm doing, basically. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully at least one positive thing to come out of this is that maybe our voices sound better now that we've got all this new sound recording equipment. However, we're going to be honing our understanding of all these fancy buttons and lights that are everywhere, and so hopefully it'll continue to get better. Crowd goes wild, Rahul. They love it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that really there's came a, through properly sound. because... yeah. Well, there's a sound that we've <laughs> but we now have a laugh track available to us. Yeah, I don't see why you'd use that there. Just the cheering for whenever I localize another lesion. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you for your attention (laughs) for this hour-long blockbuster, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Bye.